Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. While idolatry can be serious enough when practiced on a personal level, it becomes even more spiritually deadly when it becomes a tool of the enemy masquerading as a move of the Holy Spirit. If you think that to be far-fetched, then you'll want to hear what Pastor Phil has to say today, opening up in Revelation chapter 2. But this high priest that interpreted the esoteric doctrines of the mystery religions of Babylon was called Peter. The name means interpreter. And here's the idea. Here's what was going on. They believed that only the high priest of the ancient mystery religions of Babylon these esoteric occult religions, only the high priest could know what was to be believed, you know, how the religion was to be conducted. Only the high priest was close enough to God or to the gods to understand what the rest were to believe. And so he would receive it from God or the gods and he would pass it down to the people. Look, the idea that only a special few can really understand and interpret the deep things of God is one of the major teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that only the magisterium, which is the bishops acting together with the Pope, can really understand and interpret what the Bible is saying. As a Roman Catholic, you remember that, that we, were not, we could not understand the Bible. In fact, it is forbidden for us That's why for centuries the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't let the average person read the Bible. It was something that only the priests, in fact the bishops working along with the Pope, the magisterium, were anointed by God to understand what the Bible was really saying. They They alone interpreted the Bible and told the rest of the Catholic faithful what to believe, what the church, you know, in the in the decree of the church was infallible. That was it. You couldn't challenge it. Now, one of the things that really caused the Reformation to spread like wildfire, and one of the things that the Reformation did is it believed that nobody should be ignorant of the Scriptures. Every man, woman, and child should be able to read the Scriptures because you can't keep people in darkness if they know the truth. The truth will set them free. But, of course, if they're illiterate, if they can't read, then they can't read the Scriptures. Then they're left to to being told by some other person, a leader in the church, what the Bible is saying and what to believe. And so that's not a good position to be in. The church can control through ignorance people in that way. So that's why the Reformation was very big in starting schools and colleges and other things, because they wanted people to be educated. That's really what brought about the um, Enlightenment. That's the... um, uh, the transformation from the Dark Ages into what we call the Enlightened period because it was a, getting people to be able to read and to learn so that they didn't have to depend on anybody, primarily in what the Bible was saying. They could read it for themselves. And the church, the Catholic Church, put millions to death for translating the Bible into the average man's tongue and promoting the idea that people could read the Bible themselves and copying Bibles and passing them out. People were murdered or were executed for doing those things. It was horrible. Horrible time. 
Well, verse 25, Jesus says to this church, but hold fast what you have till I come. There's a few of you that are faithful. You haven't gotten involved in this idolatry. He says, you guys hang, hang on, hold fast till I come. This is the first time in these letters the second coming is mentioned, which means that this church in some form is going to be around when Jesus comes back. Then he gives the promise. Remember, each of these letters ends with a promise. In verses 26 and 7, he says, And to he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And again, the idea of an overcomer, we already talked about who is he who overcomes? He who believes in Jesus Christ, John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 5. An overcomer is simply a true believer. All true believers are overcomers. We overcome because of our faith in Christ, who is the one who actually vanquished principalities and powers and the God of this world. And once we're in Christ, we are overcomers because he was victorious. Let's see, he who overcomes and keeps my works, and of course the works of a genuine Christian really just just are a testimony to the fact that they really know the Lord. But his reward would be to reign with Jesus during the millennial kingdom. Remember we said uh, last time, I believe, that uh, the scriptures teach that, and Jesus taught, of course, that uh, those who are faithful to him now in this life, when he comes back to establish his kingdom on the earth, we're going to be reigning over cities on the earth. Depending on, on how faithful we were right now in serving the Lord and, and using the gifts he has given us, uh, he will put us in charge of one or more cities during the millennial kingdom. He will, of course, be the king of kings, lord of lords, reigning from Jerusalem over the whole earth. We will be, you know, um, area kings, of course, under his authority, but uh, ruling over smaller cities and, and, and areas and all. Uh, but we will reign like him with a rod of iron, which means during the millennial kingdom, nobody is going to be allowed to bring about uh, injustice. I mean, I don't know how much the Lord is going to tolerate. I, I don't, I'm not saying that if you tell a lie, he's going to pop you and wipe you out. I don't know. I mean, he may give you a chance to repent for something like that, but uh, it's not going to be anything like it is today, where people get away with one crime after another. The Lord is going to rule with a rod of iron, and we are going to rule under him and over our areas of authority with a rod of iron, which means that when a person commits a serious enough sin, boom, you know, you take a, a rod of iron and smack it against a clay pot, you just it just shatters it. That's the idea. No tolerance for any kind of evil during the millennial kingdom. And we will reign with him over this kingdom of righteousness. And I just always try to imagine what it will be like to live in a world where you don't have to evangelize because, as the Bible says, everybody's going to know who the Lord is, from the smallest to the greatest, because the knowledge of God is going to cover the earth like the waters of the sea do now. And you're going to be able to live in peace. You're not going to have to lock your doors. You're not going to have to worry about walking down the streets at night and somebody's going to hurt you or rob you or kill you. It's going to be, not to mention the climate changes and the fact that there's not going to be any voracious animals all the animals will be herbivores, docile, pets kind of a thing. It's an incredible time. And yet that isn't even eternity. That's still part of time, the millennial kingdom. 
Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Those who overcome, the true and faithful uh, Christians. Uh, the Lord has promised to give the overcomer the morning star. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus is called the bright and morning star. In fact, one commentator says, just as the morning star appears in the heavens before the sun rises, so Christ will appear as the morning star to rapture his church to heaven before he appears as the son of righteousness, S-U-N, Malachi 4, 4 verse 2. Why is he called the son, S-U-N, of righteousness? Because it's a title of him bringing a new day to the world. A day of righteousness, the millennial kingdom, will be here. And of course, the fact that he's going to give us the morning star is just a way of saying that before he comes back to establish his kingdom and a new day dawns for mankind, he's going to show us himself in the sense that we're going to be raptured and standing in his presence as the bright morning star. We're going to see him. And then, of course, then seven years later, we'll come back with him to establish his kingdom upon the earth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the Catholic church. Alone? To the what? Churches. Look, if you would have told me five years ago what would have been going on in the evangelical church today, I would have said, you're crazy. If you would have told me five years, you know, five years ago, if you would have said five years from that time, we would be in a period where Protestants would be saying that the Reformation was a big mistake that really Catholics and Protestants were just one big family. We're all really true believers. The Catholic Church, I mean, that's, you know, there there are brothers and sisters, and some of them are, but the Reformation went too far. You see Protestants and evangelicals who are becoming Roman Catholic, evangelical churches that are becoming, that are emerging churches. What does that mean? Churches that are going back to the mystical practices of the 3rd and 4th century of the Catholic Church going into churches where are supposed to be evangelical churches where the pastors are crossing themselves, where they have prayer stations with icons, stained glass windows. If you would have told me that was going to go on in the evangelical church, I would never have believed it. We're seeing the same thing today. We're seeing people who, for whatever reason, and I'm not saying they don't have good motives, good intentions, they're misguided. They think that this new generation, we have to give them high church because they want experience. They don't want doctrine. Doctrine is dusty and boring, and it divides people. What we need to do is come together and have experiences, a multi-sensory worship experience with candles, incense, and stained glass windows, and different labyrinths and different things. (laughs) That's how we're going to bring people together. The high church, we need to go back to the high church. Folks, The Catholic Church is the High Church. The Greek Orthodox Church is the High Church. The Russian Orthodox Church is the High Church. The High Church is the apostate church. The church that puts icons and candles and incense and the saints and statues between the people and God. It just, it blows me away. I mean, you know, we we kind of picked on the Catholic Church. I'm not trying to Catholic bash. Uh, I love Catholics. I, I have many in my own family who are still in the Catholic Church. But... The Catholic Church is going into the Great Tribulation, folks. And anybody who allies themselves or aligns themselves with the Roman Catholic Church and doesn't repent of the spiritual idolatry in the church, they're going to be going to the Great Tribulation. It's a warning that Jesus is giving. Revival has always been about getting away from high church 
or man-made practices and rules and rituals and just getting back to Jesus and the Bible and just the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what revival is all about. Folks that think that the next wave is the high church, is the emerging church, taking us back to Catholic mysticism, that's not the next wave of the Holy Spirit working in revival in the world. That's a preparation of leading the apostate church into the one world religion, which is is coming. People don't see it, but that's what's happening. The emerging church and other churches that are getting involved in mysticism It is really an attempt by the devil to get people, using good intentions, to get people prepared to receive the apostate one world religion. And we need to be faithful to the end. We need to listen to what our Lord is saying here. He is telling us, look, you stay close to me. You do what I've told you to do. You don't get into idolatry. You don't get into all these false practices. You don't combine the secular with the sacred or the pagan with the with the true, you just live for me and me alone, and I'll take care of the rest. We find ourselves tonight in chapter 3, looking at the church of Sardis, which uh, comes out of verses 1 through 6. So let's read those together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Sardis... If you have a Bible map, you will notice Sardis is inland from Ephesus, about 50 miles to the east of Ephesus. And at one time, it was the capital of Lydia, which is the province in which it's located. It is one of, or was one of the uh, oldest and most important cities in Asia Minor. Now, the city originally was built on top of a plateau that just uh, rose rather dramatically uh, up from the uh, Hermes Valley, about 1,500 feet. The interesting thing about this plateau was three sides of it were smooth rock, sheer, perpendicular, unscalable. The fourth side was very was a very steep slope containing rocks and mud, and it was pretty much felt that the city was impregnable. Because they had three sides where nobody could climb up and one very steep, treacherous uh, slope where it wasn't likely an army was going to make it up, the people in Sardis considered their city impregnable, that no one could ever take it. The problem is the city was taken twice. Once in 549 B.C. by Cyrus the Persian, who came and surrounded the city one day, 
and after several days realized that it looked impossible to take the city. After a couple of weeks, he offered a special reward to any of his soldiers that could find a way into the city. One day, one of his soldiers happened to notice that one of the sentries on top of the wall dropped his helmet down that very steep slope. He also watched that later on in the day, this soldier was able to climb down somehow, down to where his helmet had fallen, recovered it, and made his way up the slope once again back into the city. The soldiers thought, okay, gathered a few guys. That night they went, found this, was kind of a hidden path, I guess, maybe a crack in the rock there that they were able to maneuver up. They found it, worked their way up into the city, and when they got into the city, they realized the entire city was sleeping. There wasn't even any sentries on duty because they were so confident the city was unconquerable, everyone went to sleep, and so the city then fell. Well, it fell again in, what, was it 218 B.C. by uh, Antiochus, who conquered it. Uh, Again, Antiochus had surrounded the city and laid siege for a whole year. Couldn't figure out how to take this city. Then one day, one of his soldiers happened on this little secret pathway. That evening, let a few soldiers, a, a hardy climb. He had to be pretty fit to climb up this thing, so he gathered a few hardy soldiers. They, too, made their way up this treacherous little path, got into the city, and again, the city was entirely asleep, no sentries on guard. They hadn't learned their lesson at all from the first time the city was conquered, and so it fell once again because they were overconfident and apathetic. After this, a saying began to go around that Sardis was a city that was taken as a thief in the night. Remember that. It's going to be significant in a moment. Jesus picks up on their history and uses it to warn the church in Sardis that if they do not watch for his return, if they do not repent of their sins and their apathy and their overconfidence, he would come upon them as a thief and judge them. Well, in 17 A.D., The city was completely destroyed by an earthquake. And Tiberius, the Roman emperor, rebuilt it, but this time he built it at the base of the mountain, right where five trade routes intersected, which meant the city became incredibly prosperous. As a matter of fact, it became the center of the carpet industry and the wool industry. It was a textile town. Something else I thought was interesting, Sardis uh, was called a cemetery of a thousand hills because seven miles away you could see this huge acropolis that rose up above the city on top of which stood the temple of Sibylle. Now Sibylle was just another name for Diana uh, whom the Ephesians worshipped, okay, they called her Diana. Uh, the people in Sardis called her Sibylle. She went by different names, Venus, Isis. There was just different uh, cultures called her by different names. She was a goddess of love, or actually she was a goddess of fertility and so on. But uh, on top of the Acropolis was the temple of, uh, of Sibylle. But also there were hundreds of mounds on the Acropolis filled with tombstones that could be seen from miles away. You might say that death was a way of life in Sardis. Uh, the city was kind of preoccupied with death. It came to be identified with death. Now, Jesus is drawing on this background and says to the church there that they also were dead. He said, you have a name, but are dead. Here was a church that was filled with people who claimed to be alive spiritually, but were actually dead. 
The church was populated with religious unbelievers by this time. Folks that Paul said in his epistles, they have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Paul said that some who go to church, they profess to know God, but in works, they deny him with their lives. It's just a Sunday morning thing, and the rest of the week, they're pretty much doing their own thing. We're going to find out that this comes into play uh, in the church of Sardis, who fell into some very immoral situation. Uh, It's also the kind of folks that Jesus said, say to him, Lord, Lord, and yet really don't do the things that he says. They're really not born of the Spirit. They give him lip service, but their lives really don't reflect any kind of real obedience. He's not really the Lord of their lives and that kind of thing. By the time Jesus dictated this letter to the church of Sardis, the city was wealthy, but it was very degenerate. Historians tell us that at any given time, if you walked into the city, you could hear somebody somewhere in the city talking about the city's past glory. They sat around all day long talking about the past glory that the city used to enjoy, but that was it. It was all past glory. Nothing was happening today. They were just a shell of their former lives. And apparently the Christian church in Sardis had also lost its life and vitality and become a dead church instead of a living organism. All the folks in Sardis uh, who uh, went to the church there, all they apparently did all day long was talk about their past glory, how great they used to be for God. But there was really nothing going on at the present time. There was no life or power. About 100 years ago, um, somebody discovered a ship that was floating in the Arctic Ocean. And when they found this ship, they boarded it and found that the captain and the crew were still aboard, frozen to death. Some of the crew were in their hammocks. The captain was slumped over by his desk. He had made a final entry before he froze to death. And when the papers got a hold of it, they called it a drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew. How much of Christendom does that description pertain how, how much of christendom can we liken to a frozen sepulcher manned by a frozen crew or a drifting sepulcher manned by a frozen crew some have called it the frozen chosen this church was not a sanctuary it was a mortuary where dead people offered up dead worship to god and jesus is here acting like a divine coroner who was pronouncing this church dead Someone has likened um, a, the cycle of life in a movement of God or you know, just a work of God. It, it looks something like this. God raises up a man and uses that man to start a movement. When that man dies, there is still momentum, of course, from his ministry, even after he's gone. But the movement becomes a monument and eventually becomes a memorial where it completely dies. And there's just a tombstone which replaced where there was once life. Sardis had already entered into that final stage. Now, when we get to the letter to the church of Sardis, we come to the period of church history known as the Protestant Reformation. Remember last week we studied Thyatira, and that letter symbolized the Roman Catholic Church during the Dark Ages. Well, by the time we come to Sardis, this really is representative of the period of church history known as the Protestant Reformation. By this time, the uh, papal system had grown so corrupt that it was selling indulgences to finance the new church in Rome. 
If you wanted to go out and sin, you could actually purchase your forgiveness in advance. We talked about that last week. And because of this, this, the Roman Catholic Church was making a fortune selling these indulgences. Now, because of this and many other false doctrines and corrupt practices, Martin Luther, who was himself a Catholic monk, could stand it no longer. And so on October 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 theses or reforms on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg, Germany, which officially launched the Protestant Reformation. Keep that in mind because that's kind of the background of this letter, in a sense. In verse 1, Jesus said to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things, says he, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus introduces himself here as one who possesses the seven spirits and the seven stars. Look, there is only one Holy Spirit. We know that. But seven is the number of what? Completeness or fullness. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.